Welcome to this episode of the Skill Collector podcast. If you haven't done so already, I suggest you sign up for email updates at skillcollector.com forward slash podcast. My name is Mentor, and in this podcast, I share a collection of habits, techniques, and experiments that keep me sane, or perhaps that people call me a tad insane for. They will, however, be things that you can try and implement in your life. I hope you enjoy it. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about money. I think money is the kind of thing that a lot of people should spend a lot more time thinking about. But for some reason, people consider it to be a bit of a taboo. People think money is bad. People with money are bad. And and, and that's kind of a, a, a theme that's been running in recent culture uh, very much. I think this is wrong. Um, but I'll, I'll cover why that is later. Before we, uh, before we go into this, uh, a little disclaimer, uh, as you should when you talk about money. Um, I have very strong opinions, and in this coming podcast, I'm going to cover how I handle my money, how I handle my investments. Uh, this is not to say that I'm telling you to do the same. Uh, if you are going to be deciding how to handle your money and investments, do your own research, talk to an advisor, make sure this advisor, especially if you're in the United States, is something called a fiduciary. Um, the fun thing is that actually most of the advisors out there have very strong conflicts of interest. Uh, think things like getting paid to sell you certain financial products, which actually don't give you money. How much money do you need to live the rest of your life without having to work? Not to say you will stop working, because most of the people listening right now are, <laughs> well, uh, too productive and engaged to ever really stop working. Um, but let's say you, you don't want to have to work anymore. How much money do you need? Ask yourself that question. If you could have any amount of money right now, however, it has to be the lowest possible amount for you to live the rest of your life on. How much is that? Pick a number. Most people will answer something along the lines of one million or five million. Um, however, these people, they consider this pile of money as uh, basically... Well, a pile of money that they're going to be eating slowly until the day they die, um, which is rather sad. Um, one, one of the things I think is problematic with that is we are going to live a lot longer than we expect, at least if you have a healthy lifestyle. Um, so the idea of having a pile of money that you're going to eat till the end sounds a bit flawed. Now, remember, we have our investments. We have our compound interest. The money that sits still, it grows. And basically what we want is we want to start living off of the rent or the profit we get off of our investments. So the question here is not, how much money will I spend till the end of my life? No, it's how much money do I need that it will generate enough for me to survive or live well. What is a good exercise is basically... Um, Calculate for yourself how much you need to, one, survive on your current living standard, two, survive and live well, three, uh, basically live your dream. Now, if we have a look at the uh, at a calculation example using the 5% example that we used before, so 5% market return, if you have 400,000 euros, 5%, that basically gives you 20,000 of income on a yearly basis. Think about that again. 400,000 will net you 20,000. 
that's perfectly reasonable. But that also means that a 20,000 income, especially considering you're not going to pay income tax on it, is a very nice amount of income to survive on. Um, and 400,000 euros is not that unobtainable. It's far more in reach than, say, 1 to 5 million. So I'll give you the example of, um, of what I need. So my current standard of living with rent, uh, only rent and food, so just survival, uh, equals about 1,000 euros a month. Um, so, you know, th that doesn't cover all the stuff that you want to do, but basically to survive, I need 1,000 euros a month, which is 12,000 a year. Calculating backwards, that means that if I have 240,000 euros, um, I basically have an amount of income that will let me live without having to work. And 240,000, again, that's not too much. Sure, it's a whole bunch of money, but over the course of 10 years, that sounds attainable. And retiring in 10 years, especially as me, a young guy, that sounds pretty sweet. Again, not that I'm gonna. Um, if I wanna live well, I wanna have rent, I wanna have food, and then I want to go out for dinner, do fun stuff, uh, and whatever. Well, let's say that requires 1,500 a month. Well, with 360,000 euros, I'm there. Now, let's say I really want to have a life in which I can do anything that I want um, within small bandwidths. So I can live, I can travel to whatever country I want to, I can buy any toys I want, new laptops, fridge reality goggles, whatever makes the geek me happy. Um, let's say 3,000 a month net is enough. Well, that would, quote-unquote, only uh, require 720,000. Not even a million. And I can live where I live right now. I can travel the world and buy anything I want. That's pretty sweet. So, again, and my plan is to go way beyond that. Oh, yes. Uh, but it's very comforting to know, at least from yourself, how much you need and how much actually you, you don't need um, to survive at such a, such a high standard. So do this calculation for yourself. Um, if you want to calculate based on a 5% uh, return, um, that's historically relatively, relatively conservative. You can do the calculation with a bunch of percentages. But get a bandwidth for yourself. Like what amount of money do you need? And then basically, hypothetically, you could retire. And what you'll find is it's actually a lot, a lot more in reach um, than you thought it was. So now that we have that out of the way, what I would like to start with is, um, well, to tell you how, how I got on this path in the first place. Uh, a couple of years back, I, well, I was a broke student, uh, but I already started thinking about, uh, about money, um, which I guess it's the perfect time to start thinking about money because you don't have a whole lot. And you're trying to not spend too much. You're trying to gain more. Uh, both of them are very difficult at the time. And from that point, I started reading books, uh, blogs, podcasts, etc., to try and learn as much as I could. Because it seemed, if I look at the world, like I didn't know something that some people did. And apparently, there is this thing called, you know, people say, the rich get richer. Well, I found myself sometimes saying that sentence and then sort of slapping myself in the face because I had no idea what that actually meant. And as I started doing research, actually, 
It turns out that that uh, whole rich get richer thing is actually kind of a useful thing for me. I mean, look at it this way. Uh, if you're going to run a race, let's say a marathon, it's super long. It's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. Um, however, for whatever magical reason, a, a genie pops out of your whatever, you have some sort of lamp. This is a story. Just assume it's true. Uh, and they say, well, this marathon, the longer you run it, the easier it gets. Well, that sounds like the kind of race that I would like to run. And the rich get richer, if that would be true, that would be a great thing for me because that would mean the more money I earn, the more money I will get. And that actually sounds like a, a great way to live my life. However, then when you look around the world, that's not what I see. I see a lot of people who make a lot of money and, well, they lose it. Um, they don't, well, presumably they don't spend it right, but also that money doesn't just grow into more money. Or sleets, at least that's, that's what I see. So as I started doing research, the fun thing is that the most people that I was looking at for uh, financial advice, think people like uh, Warren Buffett, who seems like a morally okay guy and who makes a shit ton of money. Um, people like that actually gave the same advice. Uh, like pretty much nine out of 10 gave the same advice to make your money grow. And we'll, we'll go into that uh, a tad later. But the big lesson there is, I started realizing that something like the rich get richer can actually be turned to your advantage and doesn't have to be unfair. It's only unfair if um, not everyone knows how to do this. Hence, I'm making this podcast to make sure that anyone who wants to can benefit from uh, from the things that I managed to dig up. A second very important thing is that making a budget for a lot of people sounds like a very restrictive kind of thing. It's going to make, one, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be confronting. It's going to be annoying. It's going to be limiting your options. However, what I found is that it's the exact opposite if you do it right. A proper budget uh, frees you up. It makes you feel more uh, free and less restricted. Once you make a proper budget, that means you know exactly what you can and cannot spend and Specifically, I'm, I'm a big fan of this budget category called guilt-free. I literally have a, a little box in my budget for money I can spend on spend on whatever the hell I want. Uh, and I am allowed to feel guilty about it, which is great. Thing is, if you're not managing your money, you're kind of constantly in this state of limbo. Uh, meaning, if you don't take control of it, you don't know exactly how much you have. You don't know how much exactly you'll have at the end of the month. Uh or even at the end of the week. Once I started making budgets, and by now I'm at the point where I know exactly how much money I have now, how much I will have next month, and I can project pretty accurately what I'll have in six months. Um, how to do this, we'll go into later. But one thing that I've come to realize is that a proper budget is a great tool um, to enable you to live life more relaxed and more free. A third thing, once you start looking at finance and investing, it turns out it's actually not so complicated. It's a bit like losing weight. Not in a direct analogy, but once you, if, if you don't know anything about biology or health yet, if you look out into the world, it seems like there are thousands of people all with their own opinion and they're all saying they're right. It's kind of like that in finance investing. The thing is that drawing the analogy to, uh, 
to losing weight, there are a handful of rules, maybe five rules. If you stick to them, you'll have 95% uh, of the results. Um, the way it is in weight loss or health in general, it appeared that that was the case with financing as well. Um, and with finance, I here specifically mean investing. And at some point, well, I thought that I was missing something because it, you know, you kind of go into this mode of it can't be that simple, can it? Um, however, all the books that were recommended to me did advise this particular strategy. Uh, and then at some point I start wondering, well, maybe, you know, the people who advise me these books have a certain bias towards certain techniques or whatever. And then I remembered a couple years ago, I was at a summer program called Draper University, founded by a guy called Tim Draper, uh, who uh, is a venture capitalist or was a venture capitalist. And he's a billionaire. Um... Well, as impressive as that sounds, he's a, <laughs> a really fun guy who wears superhero ties. But at some point, he had his uh, financial manager come over. I'm not sure what he called a financial manager or planner or whatever. He, um, he told us what he does with uh, Mr. Draper's billion. Because when you think about it, uh, it's kind of a risk to have a billion dollars. It means that 1% loss is a lot of money and 1% gain is a lot of money. Uh, and the fun thing is that what he told us, uh, when I look back at it, is exactly the same that all these books were recommending me. So I, uh, I stuck to that. Uh, and again, all these details we'll go into a bit, uh, a bit later. And the last thing was, and I forget what, what book this was from. Uh, I remember the book itself was not too interesting, but there was a very, very interesting concept in there. Basically, money you should consider it your employee. And uh, specifically, you should, or you could in this analogy, consider every euro, dollar, or whatever, you could consider it an employee of yours. Imagine having uh, 1,000 euros in the bank for a year. That, that doesn't seem too big of, a, big of an issue. I mean, it sounds pretty nice. Uh, however, if you take the same, say, 1,000 euros and put it in this analogy, and you say, well, I have a thousand employees and they're sitting still in a room and I'm not letting them do anything. That sounds like a terrible inefficiency. Now, imagine you say, well, I have these thousand employees. Well, maybe I don't have work to do for them. How about I um, give them to someone else, to another company so that they can work for them? Well, this is basically what investment is. When you invest in a company, you basically give them your money in the hopes that it'll help uh, them grow so that you get more money back. Um, likewise, in a budget, I'm a very big fan of the concept of giving every one of your euros, dollars, whatever. Uh, I'll use euros from now on. Um, give every one of your euros a job to do. And how to do that we'll cover uh, in the next section, which is about uh, managing your money on a day-to-day -day basis. Long-term is fun. I really enjoy thinking long-term. However, to enable your long-term success, you're going to, have to think about the short-term as well. Now, I mentioned previously that I started as a broke student. Um, so I live in the Netherlands where you get a government loan if you want to go study. It's perfectly sufficient, but it doesn't leave much room for uh, extracurriculars <laughs> like investing uh, or spending any, any more than 10 to 50 euros on, on something you like. Um, maybe once or twice a month. So 
when I started, I thought, well, I don't even have money. What is this whole budgeting thing even going to do for me? But there was a sense inside of me, well, it seems like it's a, it's a good idea to try. So I did. And I uncovered a number of principles that helped me so much that by the end I graduated, um, I held a number of thousands of euros in assets, which actually grew to be much more than that. One of the basic principles is have at least three bank accounts. Uh, first time I read this, I thought, ah, it's a bit silly, but it helped me so much. Uh, probably if you uh, have anything near a modern bank, you can just create new accounts in your internet banking, uh, internet banking screen, which will uh, help you uh, set up the structure a lot faster than uh, say 10 years ago. So the idea here is to compartmentalize your money into three categories. The first is a central account. This central account uh, is the place where all your income goes into and all your big expenses go out of. In my case, what came in was the um, monthly grant from the government. And what went out was rent, tuition, uh, and a bunch of other things uh, like cell phone, uh, cell phone expenses. That's your big central hub account. You don't touch this account. This central account uh, never holds more than, once you're working, never holds more than 10,000 uh, euros, dollars, whatever. Um, you do not carry this card, the card to this account. So I know that there's a bunch of Americans listening. Uh, in the Netherlands, we don't really do credit cards. You can rarely pay anywhere with credit cards. Everyone just uses debit cards straight linked to your account. Um, so when you are carrying this card, if you would be carrying this card to the central account, that means that you could hypothetically spend money, uh, which is not meant to be spent. To go around this problem, you create a new account, which I like to call the guilt-free account. It's a smaller account, which never has more than 100 to 300 euros, because let's face it, on a day-to-day -day basis, you do not need more than 100 to 300 euros, ever. Um, and this is the card you carry. Um, you, like once a week, I'll have an automated transfer from my central account to my guilt-free account with food money. Um, and for the rest, once a month, I transfer my guilt-free allowance to myself to this guilt-free card which means I get to do anything with the money, don't worry about it, I don't have to track any expenses on it, uh, basically just spend whatever you want. So that's two, two very important accounts. One, the central account, in which all the expenses and income are, to the guilt-free account, which is basically just a, uh, a card you actually spend money with. The third is a savings account. And this account should ideally represent six months of um, expenses. So basically, this account should enable you to live six months without having any income. And again, I mentioned I started this as a student, so this goal seemed kind of out there. And I know that for a lot of working people, even, it sounds um, improbable, if not impossible, that you could build up on your current income six months uh, worth of basically not having to work. However, as you start implementing a budget and a financial structure like this, actually, it's not too difficult to do this over time. Uh, the most difficult one, in, in my opinion, was the first step of not living on your uh, paycheck of current month, but living on the paycheck of last month. But we'll, we'll cover that a bit later as well. One important principle here is you should automate as much as possible. If you need to think about uh, your money, 
That's a fail. You lost. Money should be something that runs itself as much as possible. So, for example, if you think about the center account, the in and out account for big, uh, big stuff, basically, in my case, I have an automated transfer for rent. I have an automated transfer for my utilities. I have an automated transfer to my guilt-free account for food every Friday. Um, and I have automated transfers to my low-risk uh, investment accounts. And that all happens monthly, automatically. I don't have to actively do anything for it. It's not a, there's no cognitive load there. Uh, it just works. Make this as foolproof as, uh, as possible. And this is one of the uses of the guilt-free card. It makes sure that you don't have to think about anything when it comes to managing your big expenses. Um, whereas your daily inconsequential things like food, coffee if you want, or whatever, uh, doesn't really impact your, uh, your money in a big way. As we're talking about these, these daily things, um, something that a lot of people do consider or think about, um, but often dismiss, is the math on having little financial habits or little habits that, that seem to have no big financial, uh, financial impact. For example, uh, drinking coffee outside of the house, uh, smoking or uh, looking at you Americans out there, uh, having lunch in a restaurant every day, or at least out. Uh, I am very lucky to live in a culture where going out for lunch or dinner is something that's considered a special occasion. Um, people don't like going out for food because, well, we're Dutch, you know, if you, if you could make it yourself for a third the prize, why would you? Um, I know that in a lot of, uh, a lot of cultures, that is a, that's a different story. So let's do some fun math here. Let's assume the year has 50 weeks, um, say uh, a year minus some, some holiday weeks, uh, and do some math on smoking coffee and lunch, in which, actually, let's, let's start with the coffee. Uh, let's say coffee takes you three euros a day, five times a week. It's a pretty cheap coffee. I think you'll have about a double espresso for that price, depending on where you live. Uh, that's about 750 euros a year. That doesn't sound too bad. I mean, 750 euros is a lot of money um, if, if it would be a, you know, a one-time expense. But over a year, I can imagine why people would dismiss it a little. Um, likewise, lunch, let's assume you spend 15 euros a week, though I know that a lot of people spend more than that. Uh, that would be um, 3,750 euros a year, which again, sounds like quite a bit expense. Now, the interesting thing is, when you start looking at this as basically lost workers, remember, money is your employee. So what would have happened if we would have put this money to work for, say, 40 years till retirement, uh, and it was well invested, let's assume 5% return on investment, which actually historically is, is pretty conservative, that 750 uh, a year of coffee could have grown to nine. Okay, first before I even say this, make a little little guess in your mind. Just don't 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 you know bring out a notepad and actually calculate it. But think of the ballpark that intuitively you think seven hundred and fifty a year could grow to. Take a minute. All right. So based on a forty-year span, this could grow to. Uh, 95,000 
879 euros and 82 cents. Um, likewise, the lunch habit, when grown over this over this four years, goes up to 479,000 euros and 399 euros and 11 cents. Basically, almost half a million. Now, I'm not pulling these numbers out of a magical hat. Um, and actually, uh, this this podcast is going to be associated to an article, and I will uh, input my uh, the code that I use to calculate these numbers. Um, this is the result of something magical called compound interest, which we'll cover in the investment section. Lesson here is, these little things that seem so inconsequential right now, they can add up to millions over the long term. And I can hear, almost hear some people think right now, ah, it can't be that much, can't be that bad. Well, that's what I thought. And then you do bring out that sketch pad and that Excel sheet. Yes, it does, you know, it, it does go that far. And then I hear some, some of my American friends complain. Well, American friends complain. Well, you know, I, I can't really, you know, bring lunch from home. I mean, you know, you just don't do that. Well, it's your choice. You could do that. Or you could retire a millionaire. Well, you choose. And you don't even have to retire at like 70. You can do it early with uh, with the proper techniques. Anyway, so start looking at your life. And think of all these little habits. Um, like what what is costing you money consistently? Now, the most important thing to consider here is um, there is a balance between cutting out these habits and living life. <laughs> I mean, you do need to enjoy uh, the time you got on this planet. So if you look, if, if I look at my own life, there's a lot of things that I could have, could cut up. Yes, um, I, uh, I do still occasionally have espresso out. Yes, I do still go out for dinner and so on. The big rule that I keep is if I would not do this right now, where this is, coffee, dinner, whatever, would I feel good about it tomorrow? So if I would do this, would I feel good about myself tomorrow? Think about a self-indulgence of mine going to a sauna, like a sauna, spa thing. We have a bunch of really nice ones in Amsterdam. Uh, and I will go there for a day and enjoy 10 to 20 different saunas. Um, will I feel good about the fact that I did that the day after? Yes. Thus, it's a good expense. However, um, if I uh, feel myself standing in a coffee place wanting to buy coffee and it's basically purely out of habit and I ask myself, does it have any consequence for me tomorrow if I would not have this coffee right now? Often the answer is no. Actually, tomorrow, if I would have looked back to myself right now, I would have said, no, don't have that coffee. It doesn't help us. It doesn't add anything, really. It's just habit. Um then that's the time to say, all right, I'm not going to do this. Likewise with smoking and so on. Uh, of course, I know for a lot of smokers, it's not as easy as, well, it's not useful, I'll quit. Um, and I'm afraid that I don't have any experience in, uh, in being addicted to smoking, so I can't really help there. But if you look at all these little habits in your life, ask yourself, will my tomorrow self tell me that this was a good decision? If, if yes, spend money and spend it ruthlessly so long as it fits within your budget. Um, if not, 
don't spend it because it'll grow to obscene amounts of money later on. Uh, last thing on the day to day is be sure to make a budget for yourself and enjoy that. There is really, I, I love the, the day of the month where I get to do my budgeting. Um, I have a piece of software called YNAB, uh, which is short for you need a budget. I highly recommend them. If you are not using a budgeting program, um, they have an offline version, uh, which they are going to stop maintaining actually, uh, and an online version, uh, which is, I think, a subscription-based uh, thing. Though for anyone out there who's still a student, um, you need a budget is free for you. So go ahead and try it. It's a great piece of software in which you can um, categorize your money. And it's based on one very simple premise. Every monetary unit, so every euro, needs to have a job the moment it comes in. So when you get income, uh, you have a thousand, <clears throat> a thousand euros. You say, of this thousand, 300, your job is to pay for rent. Boom, goes into that category, cannot be touched. 200 goes to food. That's your job, nothing else. Boom, and so on. Now remember to have a guilt-free category. Budgeting is about creating freedom, not limiting it. Um, so I have a little category for guilt-free and, um, you know, don't overspend, but don't be stingy with yourself. Um, the YNAB software also has a little course on budgeting, which is free. And, well, I highly recommend taking it. If you haven't done any budgeting before, it really helps you um, structure your thinking and help you create a, a budget that works for you. All right, so that's um, that's step one. On the day-to-day -day basis, um, have three bank accounts, automate everything, cut out financial habits that um, really aren't that useful. Do make sure that there you, you balance the cost and, and the fun of life uh, and make a budget. Please, please start making a budget. Um, and, and, you know, use a good piece of software for that. It, it's really big help. Now, section two. This is about investing. This is about that rich get richer part. So again, reminder, um, I am not a financial advisor, especially not to you, you random person on the internet who I love very much. Um, but this is just a little, um, a little collection of things that I found out in ways that I handle personally my money. Um, and so disclaimer, uh, this is not advice. I'm not responsible for anything you do, etc., etc., etc. Don't be stupid. So, what I want to start with is the thing we talked about earlier, the magic of compound interest and and how that that lunch out uh, will grow to half a million. Let's say we take uh, 5000 5000 euros, dollars whatever, 5000 monetary units and we leave it in an account, and that account has 5% interest. I know, in current climate, 5% interest on a bank account seems like, you know, a wet dream. It just doesn't happen. Um, however, it's still not too unlikely to get it at a, um, uh, with the right financial products, which we'll cover later. The thing here is, um, let's say we take that, those, those 5,000 euros. We leave it there over 40 years at a 5% interest. How much do you think that'll grow to? Instinctively, you have 5,000 and you just leave it there, standing for 40 years. 
How much, is it, how much has it become? Ask yourself. Guess something right now. Yes? All right. Got it? Well, the actual answer is 35199 and 94 cents. Um, <laughs> presuming a very strict 5%, of course. That's quite a bit of money. And the reason that that works like that, when I ask people, you know, 5,000, 5% interest, you know, they, they often many people guess it won't even go over, say, 6,000. The thing with compound interest is the, the interest of the first year, that money is now the basis for the interest you're going to get back over the second year. And the money you have at the end of the second year is going to be the basis for the interest on the third and so on and so on your money will grow faster and faster. And this is that whole rich get richer thing. Um, the more money there is in an account, the more it grows. But the amount by which it grew is basically feeding the interest of the next year, which is amazing. Um, and percentages here are, are very, very important. If you compare uh, that 5,000 over 40 years, if you compare 5% to 7%, that 5% will net you about 35,000, whereas 7%, almost 75,000. It's, it's really quite insane. Um, and what I think is really funny is that at some point Einstein commented, I need to look up the exact quote, should have done this before the podcast. Um, but basically he called compound interest uh, one of the world wonders. Basically it's a force of magic. It, it seems to make no sense to human brains because we're not good at compound thinking which is why people tend to underestimate how powerful it really is. Um, so keep this in mind. This, this magical rich go richer thing, that's partially compound interest. The longer you leave something to grow, the faster it grows. A very, very, very important note here is that fees on financial products also compound. So if you have two financial products, and we'll cover later what that can be, um, and the one says, well, we charge a management fee of 1% a year. And the other says, we charge a management fee of 1.5% a year. That is going to make a very big difference. Remember, the way that the difference between that 5% and 2%, uh, sorry, 5% and 7% uh, resulted in 35,000 and 75,000. Just imagine that what a single percent can do on your fees. And fees is basically money that people are going to get for managing your finances. And let's be very clear about something. Managing your finances, it's just a computer system. They're not actually going to do anything for you. And like you don't cost them anything. So don't feel guilty about about paying low fees. Not to say that you should have a cheap and low quality financial product. But there are very, very, very high quality products which have a very, very low level of fees. One very important thing is something called diversification. Um, people often know this term, but don't actually think about what that means. Um, but it's, it's pretty simple. Basically, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Let's say you put all your money, you saved up a whole bunch, you're going to start investing. You put it in something like, I don't know, oil. Don't know why you would, but you could. Um, and then an oil crash happens. Boom, price goes down 20%. And, well, gone is 20% of your money, basically. Uh, however, if you would have put it in a whole bunch of different things, stocks, bonds, gold, whatever, um, 
your entire what they call portfolio, so the collection of uh, investment items you have, um, is going to be buffered by the fact that you're in a whole bunch of different things. Um, meaning that if one of them fails, it doesn't really matter because the rest is probably still doing fine. And there's a whole bunch of things, or a whole bunch of things you can do to uh, to do this manually. However, what we'll cover in, uh, in in a minute or two is there's very easy ways uh, to do this without actually having to think about it. Uh, and before we go into that, one, one last thing: um, use something called cost averaging. Uh, people in the US call it dollar cost averaging. I'm not actually sure if people in Europe call it euro cost averaging. Though to be fair, I've never actually heard any of my European friends talk about investment. Um, basically, this protects you from being disadvantaged by temporary swings in the market. So if you look at the price of a market, you've probably looked at the news and seen, you know, one day it's up, other day it's down, goes up and down pretty dramatically over days and weeks. Thing is, um, that would mean that if I invest at one particular point and it happens to be a high or it happens to be a low, I'm at risk of buying basically, quote unquote, at the wrong time. Instead, what I can do is I can invest on a monthly basis. Um, so every month I can put in a small amount or big amount, whatever, uh, into whatever I'm investing in. And that will buffer the effects, the temporary fluctuations um, of a financial product. Uh, and this is called cost averaging. So I, I personally invest uh, once every month in my favorite financial products. Now, onto the particular um, two slash two and a half products that I personally use and highly uh, well recommend, not so much directly, of course, blah, blah, disca- disclaimer, uh, but things I really enjoy. Now, there's two very important things to understand. One, bonds. Two, index funds. Now, they both, to a lot of people, sound like little magical words uh, that sometimes you hear on the news, but you don't actually know what they mean. They are both, however, stupidly simple if you actually look them up. Um, so when I when I looked into this, I thought, wow, man, this this financial world thing is probably going to be quite, quite, you know, rocket science. It's not. So a bond is basically a situation where any organization, usually a government, in which case you call them government bonds, says, uh, give me 10 euros now, and at the end of the year, I will give you 10 euros and 50 cents. And that's it. That's what a bond is. A five-year bond, or a five-year government bond, is basically, for example, the Dutch government saying, give me 100 euros now, and in five years, I will give you 105 euros. It's kind of like a government loan. You loan the money, and at the end of a certain term, they pay you back a predetermined amount of money. Sounds pretty simple, right? I mean, it is pretty simple. Uh, The only side note here is the uh, value of a bond uh, depends a bit on how much you trust a country to actually pay you back. Uh, I'm sure that if I would buy Greek bonds right now, uh, they would promise me a whole bunch of money. You know, give me 100 euros now and at the end of the year, I'll give you 120 back. Sounds like a great investment. Eh, Not so much. Uh, because one would not trust the Greek government to pay back money. Um, however, when it comes to the Dutch or the German uh, governments, for example, I would be pretty confident that if I get bonds, I'll be perfectly fine getting my money back. 
All right, so that's principle one, bonds. These are generally considered to be uh, low risk. The second thing is something called index funds. And when I read about these, suddenly I was like, ah, now suddenly all those news items make sense. Basically what an index fund is, is a company, a financial company says, we are starting this fund, which is basically a pool of money from our customers. And we're creating a virtual product um, which tracks the top X number of companies in a certain space. For example, if we have uh, an index fund tracking the US market, uh, th that sounds pretty sophisticated, right? Uh, or at least it sounds like magic or sounded like magic to me at the time. Uh, an index fund tracking the US market, all that really does is um, they buy the stocks of the top, say, 500 companies uh, in the United States. And by buying um, from the top 500, basically what you're doing is you're betting on the horses that are already winning. So the thing is, since they're already winning, you're not going to have wild, wild wins. Uh, because most of the companies that have already won, they're pretty, pretty stable. Um, so the returns you're going to get are, uh, well, from the perspective of, say, a venture capitalist, pretty conservative. You're going to have somewhere between, say, 5 and 12% return. Um, it's not going to be, you know, multiplying itself 10 times, at least not in one year. However, it's a very easy way to diversify. For example, uh, a product that I really like using is a world index fund, which is basically an index fund that tracks all the top uh, companies over the entire world, which means it's incredibly diversified um, and relatively low risk. So this is an index fund. An index fund is a virtual product that tracks the top X number of companies in a certain space. So index fund tracking US market tracks US stocks. Index fund for, I don't know, sustainable technologies tracks the top, uh, top X number in sustainable technology and so on. An interesting thing, and that's why I said uh, my favorite two and a half uh, products is this little hybrid thing called an index fund of bonds. So, so yes, this is a thing. This is where it gets, or it seems to get slightly more complicated. The way that you trust or don't trust a government to pay you back with a bond, um, you could buffer this effect by basically creating an index fund that buys different bonds from highly trusted governments. And by doing that, you would make sure that, you know, if, if one of them fails, or if one of them doesn't pay back, it doesn't really matter because you've spread your eggs over the basket of many countries. So, for example, the EU Bonds Index Fund or the World Bond Index Fund, again, these used to sound like magic to me, but really they're super simple. The EU Bonds Index Fund is just a product that represents the top X number of countries, trustworthy countries, um, that will, if I give them money now, give me more money later. Um, which is really super simple. Now, before we go on uh, onto the next uh, next part, a big note on mutual funds. I know these are a big thing, specifically in the United States. Mutual funds, as far as I know, are basically places where instead of uh, uh, passively investing, which is what an index fund is, you just buy stocks of the top five hundred and wait. Um, mutual funds are places where people actively uh, uh, actively trade. 
they make day-to-day decisions based on um, the, yeah, the new information they have. Uh, this is what you imagine when you see all those shouting people on, on the New York Stock Exchange trying to buy stocks from each other. Um, it sounds like a pretty good model. Um, I will pay someone who really knows what they're talking about to buy and sell stocks for me so that I make more money than a relatively low risk product like an index fund. Here's the funny thing. Over the course of 10, 20, 30 years, so over over amount of time that you're going to be investing, um, last time I checked, uh, 95% of these mutual funds or more uh, do not beat index funds. Basically, um, humans make mistakes. <laughs> wow, surprise. Um, so if you let a human invest for you, specifically through these mutual funds, there are only a very small number of unicorns that somehow manage to, over the, over the course of decades, really manage to actually turn a profit compared to a low-risk product like index funds. Uh, what will happen is a lot of uh, mutual funds will have a good year once in a while and then advertise the hell out of that and say, we make 35% returns. Um, however, that was in, I don't know, 2001. <laughs> But that's in the small print. Um, so generally, I say stay away from mutual funds. Go low risk. Why on earth would you go high risk uh, knowing that 95% of the time you would lose? That's a, that, that's a bad gamble. And second, if you feel tempted to invest in these kind of people, I suggest you watch The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and yes, that's a movie. But consider that that was based on an actual story and an actual person who actually did those things. Then watch a movie called The Big Short about the housing crisis. And consider the following. The people you see in that movie, um, yes, that is an accurate picture of the people who are involved. And no, the people that are in the financial market have not changed since then. They're the same people. Yeah, sure, some regulations might have changed a little, but the people are the same. And mostly, uh, well, I won't spoil it for you. Go watch the movie, The Big Short. Thank me later. One important thing to consider with investment in general is, please, 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 think long term. I don't actually really look at my investments uh, more than once every couple months. I learned this lesson in the uh, the Bitcoin time I had during my student uh, during my student time, uh, when I started looking at uh, um, managing my finances into investment. <laughs> and if you look at say an index fund, or usually, well, let's take an index fund. If you look on a day or week or month basis, it seems like they're wildly fluctuating up and down over a horizontal axis. In other words, it looks like it's just randomly going up and down. Um, this is the stuff you see on the news. Those are those graphs. You see, oh my God, up, down, up, down. Thing is, the moment you zoom out to a perspective of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, suddenly you see that really, yes, it goes up, down, up, down, up, down. But if you zoom out, it, it just basically vibrates along an upward trend. Um, because, the, you know, in an index fund, you're tracking the winning companies. The idea of the winning companies is that they're making money. Um, so 
most likely uh, they will continue to make money. And here's the thing. In, in, in financial products, at least in the Netherlands, you always have this, this disclaimer that says uh, the results of the past are not a guarantee of the future, which is very true. It is totally possible that um, the whole world is going to burn and these, uh, like the whole economy of everything is going to crash. However, my personal perspective on this is um, for an index fund to, over the course of decades, fail, that would mean the entire economy failed, in which case my money would have been worthless anyway. So on a sort of game theory kind of perspective, either I can do this, which is a relatively uh, low, low cost way or low risk way to make money and do this whole rich get richer thing. Um, or I can go into panic mode, not do anything and not get richer. Well, I'll go with the first. Um, again, in the, the article associated to this podcast, I'll put a, a number of images that show the, uh, the graphs of these funds. Uh, and oh, the last thing here is, again, a lesson from the Bitcoin times. Uh, buffer your humanness, your emotions using a plan. A fun thing that you'll see in markets in general is whenever prices go up, for example, you have an index fund, prices go up people start buying because they're like, oh my God, it's going well. We should buy now. And the moment oil prices go, go down, uh, people start selling like, oh no, the sky's falling. Let's get rid of this before it, it drops even further. Think of this as an analogy for, uh, let's say you have a store, right? It's really irrational. Let's say the store represents the stock market. They're having a sale. Prices go down drastically. And you as a long-term thinker know that over the course of 10, 20 years, this is a temporary low because lows generally are always temporary if you look at the big graph. Um, so prices are low. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy at a discount or are you going to sell all your stuff back in the store so that next week when the prices are higher, uh, you can buy back again at a huge loss? It sounds irrational when you put it that way, but in essence, that's what happens to a lot of investors. Why? Well, because we're human, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, but humans, they have emotions, at least I like to think we do, <laughs> or most of us do anyway. The moment that uh, a market crash, we, we, we panic. So our first instinct is, oh no, sell. Now You need to buffer this in yourself by having a plan up front. So whatever you do, whether you take the same route I did or take an entirely different route, make a plan right now. Make sure you think that is as good of a plan as it's going to get and then implement that plan and ignore the market, ignore the news, don't read it. This is, again, one of those lessons that came from all the people, all the books I read. And, and uh, again, also this, this financial manager that, that Mr. Draper uh, gave us the opportunity to listen to for about an hour. Because day-to-day -day fluctuations, for example, in the news, it's not interesting for us. We're looking at a 10, 20 year picture. And that's not a sensationalist story. Thus, you're going to not hear it on the news. Uh, however, if you do feel the need to go crazy on investing and actively trade, it's okay. Just do that with a small portion of money and realize that it's basically gambling. Um, so in my case, the bulk of my income goes to low risk, high yield uh, bonds and index funds. So now that I say that, let me go over very quickly, uh, specifically, and very specifically, 
how I invest. So the same way that I compartmentalize my finances, I compartmentalize my investments. I basically have four categories in which I invest, uh, which are incidentally also four accounts. One is a temporary account where I park money. And when I say park money, that is um, my center account is never allowed to have more than uh, 10,000 euros. So that's the account for rent and expenses, uh, because otherwise I think I'll have too much money that's sitting still. Any excess money goes into this temporary parking account, which is an account that um, buys low risk, super low risk investments. For example, uh, one of the things it does is it buys a global index fund of bonds which is not too exciting. Its return has historically been between 3 and 7%. Um, but that's definitely more than what my bank is currently giving me. The second is a traditional account which has regular amount of risk. And when I say regular amount of risk, is it, it sticks with the uh, recommendations of many of the people that, that I read about. Basically, of the money that's in your regular account, invest your age in bonds, so, for example, if you're 30 years old, 30% in bonds, and the rest in low-cost index funds. Now, the third is a traditional high risk. So, this is an account that still does traditional index fund investing, um, but on the high-risk spectrum. Specifically, I'm a very big fan of an index fund that tracks small-cap companies. Basically, uh, these are smaller companies, not the big, big giants. Uh, but hypothetically speaking, one of the arguments that a lot of people make is these are the companies that still have a lot of growth ahead of them. Um, so, well, so far, the results have been pretty nice. Uh, it's mm, 1.2 to two times as much as, as the World Index Fund. However, it's more risky, uh, especially over the long term. So the, the bulk of my money will go into the, to the traditional regular, uh, regular risk account. So agent bonds rest in uh, low-cost index funds. And the fourth um, is my risk investment. And when I say risk investment, that is stuff that's kind of out there. Um, that's usually things that most people don't even think about or understand. Things like cryptocurrencies or new emerging technologies that I want to invest in. Um, this is a smaller amount of money. Uh, it can make insane returns. Personally, I uh, made a 5,000% return uh, on a project called Ethereum. Um, 5,000% for the people who are not in their math mood today, that's a 50 times increase in my money. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I was investing with my student money at the time, so it's not like I'm set for life right now, but I made a pretty decent profit. Um, so that's what the risk account is for. However, uh, so on an emotional level, numbers like 5,000% make you say, well, put everything on that one. This is not gambling. This is a long-term endeavor. So I make my plan beforehand. My plan is most goes into the traditional, regular, long-term investments. And this risk thing is just something I get to play with. Um, companies I invest in, so the products I buy, I'm with a company called Brand New Day, which is a Dutch, uh, a Dutch company, uh, which allows me to buy low-cost index funds at a low price. And these funds I get from a brand called Vanguard, which as far as financial providers go, are absolutely awesome. They basically are no nonsense, low fee and, and high quality. Uh, the thing in the Netherlands is uh, investing, especially in index funds, has not been a thing for too long. 
So actually, brand new day, the company is not so old. Uh, so I'm very happy that they uh, that they exist right now. If you are in the United States, I know a lot of people are a very big fan of a company called Wealthfront. Uh, and Wealthfront actually uh, does a whole bunch of this investment for you um, and diversification for you automatically, which is great. All right, that covers it for today. This podcast also has an article associated to it in which most of this is written out. So if you enjoy reading that, you can go to skillcollector.com. And if this, if you're listening to this straight after the podcast came out, it should be on the homepage. Um, if not, you can go to the search bar and type in uh, finances or investments and then the article will pop up. Um, I'm also most likely going to make this into a course. Uh, well, seeing as I'm saying it right now, by the time this podcast comes out, this will also be available as a online course. Uh, so if you go to skillcollector.com and then on the right top, there's a little thing that says free courses, the Skill Collector Academy. Uh, if you click that, you can, you can, um, uh, enter this course for free and basically do a little, um, little course on the stuff that we covered in the past hour. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a very nice day. And if you have any questions, please uh, comment on the blog and I will do my very, very best to answer your questions as well as I can.